welcome back to the Glue Guys. This is Mike here. Brian is not here. Uh, what you will hear, though, coming up is Dan Devine from The Ringer joined me for about 40 minutes or so. Uh, we talked a little bit about the schedule that came out and sort of, you know, how that may play out throughout the season in terms of sort of high marks and maybe some low marks. Um, and then we talked a lot about the Nets. And Dan talked about uh, the difference between Kyrie Irving and D'Angelo Russell a little bit of KD, what KD, if he may come back, if he may not, DeAndre Jordan, um, and overall how, you know, Dan spoke a lot about how the Nets' offensive scheme may change or may improve with the new additions on the team compared to what the team was last year. Uh, before, though, you get to the Dan Devine interview that I did just a little while ago, I did want to talk a little bit about the schedule because we just got it yesterday. And there's a couple of things that are, to me, that are incredibly intriguing within this. So, I mean, the, obviously, there's some big dates that everyone was sort of looking for, which was when were the Nets going to go to Boston? Um, I'm not excited about that, but people wanted to know that. Uh, maybe when the Nets were going to go to San Francisco to see the Golden State Warriors. And, of course, when D'Angelo Russell would be back in Barclays. And Nets Daily has a tremendous breakout on their post of sort of the information that you want to know about those big dates uh, and more sort of good schedule minutiae just to know in general. I mean, first about D'Angelo Russell's that he's going to be back with the Golden State Warriors February 5th, uh, which will be in Brooklyn, which will be very exciting. Game's going to be on TNT. And then a month after that, March 12th, Kevin Durant maybe on the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, they're in San Francisco at the new stadium, the Chase Center, uh, that the Golden State Warriors just built, this gigantic, gorgeous new arena. The Nets will be in San Francisco March 12th. And why we care about March 12th? Well, March 12th is almost nine months to the day that Durant went in for surgery on his ruptured Achilles. And if you've been reading anything about the timelines of guys who've been hurt, nine months is about the point when a lot of basketball players who've been hurt with an Achilles injury, who have torn Achilles, have come back to start playing some kind of basketball games. Um, so, it's interesting, and I think obviously calculated by the NBA, that they decided to build in Kevin Durant's return to the Bay Area almost on the timeline that it would take for, for someone with his injury to come back from his injury. Now, we've had no indication from the Brooklyn Nets about if Kevin Durant's going to play this season. They've played this thing very close to the vest, but they are leaving it open-ended. So, and, and in Kevin Durant, in his interview with Chris Haynes recently, also wouldn't close the door on this season at all. And I made this point to Dan Devine in our interview, is that the type of guy that Kevin Durant is, the type of guy that was willing to play with an injury in the NBA Finals in a series that... Was shading more towards a Raptors win than a Warriors win. That type of person, to me, is the type of guy that may want to actually continue to play basketball as soon as he can. Um, so I think it, it, and obviously the NBA doesn't actually have information on Kevin Durant of when he may come back. I don't think Kevin Durant has information on when he may come back. I can't imagine a doctor could now tell him, in nine months, you'll be playing basketball. Um, but, again, historical track record of torn Achilles injuries, nine months is about the time that it takes for someone to come back onto the basketball court 
Now, would the Nets want Kevin Durant to come back his first game, be at Golden State in the Bay Area? I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want, um, you know, so there's another game in March, and I'm going to talk about March specifically because I think it's such an interesting month month for the Nets. Um, They play a home game on a Monday night, March 23rd, against the Orlando Magic. And, you know, to, to me, there's no softer welcome back into the NBA than to play a home game on a Monday night, which, again, Monday nights are kind of slow in basketball. It's generally not a high wattage night to come back against the Orlando Magic. That would be how I would target it, even if he's healthy to play in that Golden State Warriors game, which would be about two, about a week and a half prior. I'd rather him come back at home, one, because you want the buzz of Kevin Durant being in Brooklyn. You would want the, his first games in Brooklyn to be, you know, him his first games of the season. The other interesting thing about that Warriors game in March overall, that's part of a four-month or a four-game road trip out west where they play the Lakers, Warriors, Clippers, and Kings. Lakers, Warriors, and Clippers all in a row, possibly the three best teams in the West. Maybe the Warriors aren't, but, you know, they're still the Warriors. That is an extremely tough slate. And to me, again, I don't think that you'd want to insert Kevin Durant into that little stretch there on the West Coast if he's coming back from his injury. I would look for a little softer landing. The first home game after that four-game stretch is the Wizards on a Wednesday night. The Wizards are probably going to be pretty bad. The next game is the Boston Celtics on a Saturday, and the Celtics will be a team that the Nets ostensibly will have to worry about in the playoffs. So, you know, you would actually want Kevin Durant back for that, but maybe that, again, a little too much pressure. So I could see Durant maybe coming back. Again, this is all speculation. Durant maybe coming back. Wednesday, March 18th, it gets the Warriors at home, skipping that Celtics game, and then playing again home Monday night against the Magic, or just starting them off home Monday night against the Magic. The next game after that, the Clippers, Wednesday night, are in Brooklyn. Have them skip that. I mean, because what's going to happen is we're not getting full strength Durant or full minutes Durant the minute he comes back. There's going to be a slow progression. Look at Rudy Gay. With When his season, when he came back from his Achilles injury, I think he was on the San Antonio Spurs. His minutes, he played about 20 minutes a game, and more than that at times, but it wasn't a full 35. Uh, not that necessarily Rudy Gray warrants 35 minutes of basketball playing time on the court like Kevin Durant will warrant, but I imagine the Nets are going to do uh, targeted, will give you a five-minute spurt here, a four-minute spurt here, maybe a seven-minute spurt, and then back down to a three-minute spurt. You know, they'll they'll be pretty targeted with it. So March is just an interesting time. Um, a couple more facts. There's 11 back-to-backs for the Nets this year, tied for the fuse in the league, according to the Nets Daily. Vince Carter, his final home appearance with when he – now he's with the Hawks, would be January 10th. Um, that, that could be a special game in Brooklyn. Kyrie Irving, November 27th in Boston. Again, I'm already getting anxiety about that game. I don't I don't want like I almost wish there was like I don't want that attention for the Nets. Cuz that's a negative attention and that forces Kyrie back into sort of the 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 front and centerness of the Nets. And I want Kyrie to be more blended within the team. 
He's going to be the star of the team. He's going to be the leader of the team. He's going to be the main ball handler, the main point scorer, and all that stuff. But I don't want the Nets season to be all about Kyrie. I would rather Kyrie to be an element of a successful Nets season that when Kevin Durant comes back, there's more of a natural team here as opposed to Kyrie and the Musketeers, and then Kevin Durant comes in to help lead them too. And that Boston game going... Being in Boston, they're going to be yelling and booing and all that crap. And, you know, it's on ESPN. I'm sure ESPN on all their daytime shows are going to go crazy with it. You know, I, I'm i not, like, super looking forward to it. It is later-ish, not late in the season, but it's not the very beginning of the season where maybe enough of a culture could be built with the team that, that then that's a singular Kyrie moment that goes back to after that's over. We go back to worrying about the Brooklyn Nets. I just don't want Kyrie to be so front and center all the time. I want to be a little bit of Carousel Verdon, Spencer Dinwiddie, and Joe Harris, and Jared Allen, and DeAndre Jordan, Tareen Prince. Um, not so much about Kyrie Irving. So again, D'Angelo's back February 5th. Durant possibly back in San Francisco in the Bay Area March 12th. Kyrie, November 27th, right around Thanksgiving, the night before. Um, and 11 back-to-backs if he was in the league. It, it's an interesting schedule. It, it, You know, I think the longest stretch in terms of being away is five games, and that's at the like very beginning of the season. I think it's the first or second road trip overall. Five games is nothing. I think last year they had like a seven or six, a seven or eight-game road trip. That were that was that was pretty excruciating for the team. Five games on the road is, and that's the only th- time they do five games. They don't do five games and then another five games. So you know, who, you know, every team, you know, who you're playing every year. It's not as if, you know, suddenly, oh wow, we're playing, you know, the New England Patriots. That doesn't really happen. But you, what you look for is road trips, length of road trips. When you may be getting certain teams, when do the home-at-home situations work out? Do, does someone come to you first, or do you go to them first? You kind of look about where all of the little runs may be. And what you just don't want is you don't want you know to begin your season with the Bucks and the Raptors and the 76ers and then a big road trip out west where you're playing the two L.A. teams and the Warriors, and then you come back, and then it's you know a tough game against Boston. You want to space out your bad with your good so you can balance the schedule. So there it is. So that's the schedule. Uh, so what we'll do real real quick right now is we will do a quick break. And then coming back, you'll have Dan Devine from The Ringer talking about the schedule and overall about you know the NBA and the Nets. All right. Well, joining me on the line today is one of The Ringer's illustrious basketball writers, Dan Devine. Dan, thank you so much for being here with the Glue Guys. I really appreciate it, man. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me on. It's a pretty wonderful time, and we we didn't necessarily plan this because I don't think we. I mean, I don't know. We didn't know that the schedule would come out, but now the NBA schedule is out. It's always, you know, every time it happens, I get so excited because I actually want to see the basketball games, even though we are <laughs> months and months away from those games being played. Um, just so you wrote a piece for the Ringer specifically about fourteen games that you wanted to highlight uh, throughout the season. <laughs> As you're kind of going through, what stood out to you about the schedule and sort of the matchups that are as they come out? 
Yeah, well, to be honest with you, so, I mean, some of those things, you know, didn't really have much to do with the the specific dates or times or, or places or whatever. It's a little more just like what so some of it is the, the sort of dramatic narrative storylines, right? You know, you could have no matter what day, uh, you know, Kawhi was going to go back to Toronto or no matter what day Kyrie was going to go back to Boston or whatever, you know, Anthony Davis in New Orleans. Those were things you want to kind of pay attention to because, A, you know that the structure of the storylines around the league are going to be sort of geared toward identifying those moments and thinking about what they mean and what brought us to the places where those players made the decisions they made and what that says about the league and player empowerment and, you know, rising and falling franchises and all those sorts of things. So there's all these sort of storylines that come out of those. Uh, So those, yeah, that's part of it. It's so interesting that like, so we, you know, there's anxiety among like a certain group, I think mostly like the owners about player empowerment and player movement and everything that's been happening with that. Obviously, there's a lot of excitement. I mean, you guys see it at the ringer. So much excitement about guys leaving teams, getting traded, forcing trades, you know, uh, the amount of stars that have left. Like, so last last night when the, the schedule came out, I see a thing like Jimmy Butler returns to Philly and I had completely forgotten that Jimmy Butler had left Philly, <laughs> you know, just like the amount of carnage in the NBA offseason, a guy like Jimmy Butler, I even just forgot that he was gone. Um, and what it creates is in the schedule situation is that basically you could load up the schedule where like every week another star returns to the town that either he left sort of in in shame or in pride and there's like, I don't know what, there could be 10 of those games this year. You talk about Kyrie, Kawhi, AD. Is there one in particular that you, just from like a human watching perspective, you want to see the most? Sort of how the crowd reacts and how the player maybe reacts to sort of being thrown into that cauldron? Well, yeah, I'll give, I'll, you know, I'll note the Kawhi one again, if only because, so I don't think that's going to be a cauldron necessarily. Obviously, they're, they're you know, Toronto's so... He he did what he was brought there to do, right? He led them to a championship. But I feel it seemed I'm interested to see what the reaction looks like for him because he, there's you know for a one year sort of circumstance, I don't know that it could have gone any better from the perspective of the Raptors and their fans. But also, you know, we we've had a writer on our site, uh, Adam Naiman, who typically writes film reviews for us or film essays, but also is a Toronto uh, a Canadian and a Raptors fan, and wrote about the sort of weird feeling of. Yes, this was what we wanted, but also it's over so quickly. And it's and you know how how are we going to sort of respond to that? And I think seeing what that looks like when the Clippers go to visit the Raptors is going to be really interesting. I think that's you know you talk about sort of human drama and human emotion. It, this one is going to be a little more complicated than just we're going to boo this guy or just we're going to cheer this guy. And I think sort of how that plays out is going to be fascinating to watch. And from I guess like we're so used to the the more vitriolic returns. Uh, and I think AD is going to check off that box when he goes back to new Orleans and Kyrie very well may in Boston. I mean, you know, that, now that, that didn't work out. That situation didn't work out for a variety of reasons, but, um, I think there's a general sentiment that, uh, if nothing else, I say that I would guess the general sentiment among Celtics fans for Kyrie is not necessarily like we'll cheer him as a conquering hero. So we'll see what, <laughs> we'll see what that looks like. But, um, the, on the, the sort of silver lining, the sunnier side of it, I think uh, Russell Westbrook going back to Oklahoma City should be pretty cool to watch. Like, it's a, uh, you know, he kind of has been the Thunder for 11 years, right? And and 
you know, Durant goes and Harden is traded away and, you know, the, all of the guys that were there for long periods of time, you know, Jeff Green is, goes away and Nick Collison retires, uh, so on and so forth. Serge Ibaka gets traded away. He's the guy that's been there. So I, I imagine that's going to be a big, like, big warm hug. But um, and that might be kind of cool to watch is nothing else like maybe a palate cleanser towards some of the negative ones. I don't know what the first return is like the first star returning to that team is. I think Kyrie in Boston is like the day before Thanksgiving or the day after Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of further in. But like each fan base is going to see how the other fan base reacted to whatever star it is. For one thing we know is that each team is going to do. Um, some type of like a memory reel of a highlight reel of that player. I think, I mean, I would imagine e even the Pelicans will do that for AD. I don't know if Boston's going to do that for Kyrie uh, because what were the highlights? Uh, while he was second team all NBA, there wasn't like, um, there weren't really many moments that like people really remember, but each fan base is going to like build off the, the previous one. And there's going to be one fan base that probably goes over the line. And we're all going to get mad about. And then there's then that fan, the next fan base, whoever it will be, will learn. Okay, we don't want to do that. We don't want to get yelled at by Stephen A. Smith and everyone on TV. So what are we going to do? How are we going to treat it? It's going to be just inter it's like the, the first two months of the NBA season will basically be sort of like not a referendum on fandom, but it will just be like a real exhibition of how fans feel about these players in this era when guys are going all over the place and you know, changing teams with such frequency. It's going to be one of the more interesting beginnings of a season that we've had in a while. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think, I mean, I forget the exact number, but it was something like 40% of the league changed teams this summer, you know, uh, and that's sort of mind boggling. The, the, and the, you know, there's a variety of factors that contribute to that, you know, with shorter contracts and rising salary cap and, you know, and players, pursuing different uh, especially players at a certain level you know where the money is going to be sort of equal for them pursuing uh, you know happiness as opposed to the top dollar and you know making their decisions for all sorts of different reasons and so you have a lot of you know, a lot of player movement a lot of uh, you know sort of familiar faces in new places a lot of I think the, you know the, the early season games of who he play for on the TNT broadcast are going to be interesting because if you know like the the nut jobs like us on Twitter are not always sure who's on what team I have a hard time imagining Charles Barkley is going to be real great at that in the early going so we'll see how that plays out um, but I, I th and and there's you, you really you bring up a good point about the lines are being sort of redrawn uh, or or colored in or re-emphasized as far as What's the, you know, sort of acceptable fan behavior, what's considered appropriate and inappropriate. You know, we had those, you know, sort of significant incidents last year, namely the one with Russell Westbrook in Utah, where there's the question of sort of what's, what kind of language is acceptable to use for play for fans towards players. And then, you know, what can players respond back towards fans? And, you know, there's, there is that, a, you know, are those, do those turn into safety issues and security issues? And there's the... All of these sorts of things, the emotions involved in it, the sort of pitched up nature of all of it, it gets ratcheted up to a degree where it can be complicated. It can get difficult to sort of parse it all out. So at the same time that we're trying to figure out who's on what roster and how the lineups are going to work out and the rotations are going to play out, we're also going to be figuring out how we feel about a lot of those things. And I think that's an ongoing project. I wrote, I wrote about that sort of after the, the news came out that Kawhi's deal Kawhi and Paul George are both going to be on like two year deals, basically, with where the third year is a player option. So, you know, the Clippers move heaven and earth to make this happen, uh, give up, you know, a half decade or more of draft capital to make it happen. 
and they basically have a two year window. And that's the new reality right now. The reality with given the, you know, all of the things we just talked about with shorter contracts and salary cap rising and, you know, competing narrative, competing reasons for players to go into different places means the windows for teams are shorter and shorter. The windows for lineups and rosters are shorter and shorter. And the times that fan, the the amount of time that fans have to sort of get to invest in a roster is getting growing shorter and shorter too. Um, And so that I think creates some additional complications in terms of the way we relate to players and teams and organizations. So, um, and maybe that's, you know, maybe that's going as something that we'll just continue to figure out over time as we get used to a new normal. But uh, in the short term, it sort of yeah, it leaves a great amount unsettled and we're just going to have to sort of get it settled over the course of time. Right. And so classically, you would think about, OK, a star in Philadelphia forces his way out to then go to an Eastern Conference rival of some sort. And you would normally think in that situation that like Philly fans with their reputation are going to be furious and they're going to be booing and they're going to throw batteries at Santa or whatever, you know, whatever happened uh, all those years ago. Uh, But with Jimmy Butler, it was he was traded onto the 76ers. And if you kind of pulled 76ers fans, I know you have a lot of Sixers fans at the ringer. They appreciated what Butler did is particularly in the playoffs, but he wasn't beloved and he wasn't necessarily hated. He was in this sort of neutral ground, Um, you know, like him going back to Philadelphia for a game, you would expect again that like they would go insane, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't think the, the passion's going to be there. The guy, the guys you're going to get the passion are, is going to be Kyrie and Anthony Davis. And the thing about Anthony Davis is that he played for New Orleans, which, um, you know, they do, They don't have like the craziest fans. You know, they they have a pretty they have a fun crowd. I've been to a game. You know, it's a mild crowd. It's a good time. But um, I don't even think that they'll go. They're not going to go to the level that like Oklahoma City fans went to when Kevin Durant came back or when LeBron came back. I mean, I remember that LeBron back to Cleveland game was like that was tense. That felt like a moment that was that was going to be like anything could happen um, when he went back, you know, after the decision. I don't think, you know, really only Kyrie is the only thing that I could see being like kind of ugly. That's just because of who the fan base is and kind of what happened that season. But I think part of that, too, is also the the you're right that maybe this the nature of the passion in those situations wouldn't be as severe. But also um, Philly comes out of the Butler sign and trade with Josh Richardson and Al Horford and arguably in better position to be an Eastern Conference Finals contender than they were even when he was there. Right. Um, and New Orleans comes out of the Anthony Davis trade with, you know, you, your mileage may vary on what you think of Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, and Josh Hart, uh, but they come out of it with Zion Williamson, who maybe has a chance to sort of connect with that that city and that market and that fan base and sort of energize that fan base in a way that even like as someone as transcendent a talent as Anthony Davis never really did. He it, it, there was always something where it was a, a, sort of an aloof aspect to his personality or his not, you know, didn't really connect with the fan base in the same way that maybe that, that the, the hope is that Zion Williamson might. So the, like the Pelicans come out of that deal instead of being like a strip mind NBA, you know, outpost that's never going to matter at all. Like they instantly matter again. So boss and not that Boston is, is going to, is, you know, going to be forever irrelevant as a result of Kyrie leaving. I mean, they come back with Kemba Walker as well, but 
they're the, the that's the franchise that like that is in a worse situation or a worse outcome after the fact. So I can see. I think you're right to to note that that's probably going to be a, uh, a a tougher room. A because Boston is a tough. It can be a sort of a, a tough home crowd anyway. And then B because there's a that went from we're going to compete for championships this year to we're probably more likely to be a four or five seed again. And so I think that's you know if you're a fan base that is looking at the outgoing superstar and feeling like you don't have as much hope as you used to, then you're going to respond more negatively than uh, I think, you know, you might see in Philly or New Orleans. And I don't know, I'm going to be really interested to see what the, what the Kyrie to Boston thing looks like and, and how Boston looks this year without him. Um, you know, there's, we've written about, you know, but, you know, we've talked about and written about and just you know, sort of dissected and discussed the idea that uh, Kyrie have for all the things that he added as a talent, Maybe had some other negative traits that, that that were not as positive for the for the the Celtics last year, the last couple of seasons, and what that's going to mean replacing him with Kemba Walker, what that means with him coming into Brooklyn and replacing D'Angelo Russell. Uh, again, it goes back to your point of the first couple of months of the season. I think are going to tell us a whole lot. So I'm looking at TNT's just the TNT schedule, like all all of all the national games, and one that really stands out, and you pointed this out in your article, not necessarily about TNT, but overall, is that the Pelicans are. In prime time, they're on national TV a lot, and that's obviously the Zion effect. And and really, that's not unprecedented, but that is rarefied air to be a rookie that is that much of a needle mover in terms of television ratings or you know television interest potentially, because very rarely is the number one overall pick the team that gets them immediately thrust into you know the prime time slots on TNT and ESPN. But like if you look down the TNT schedule. It's particularly in the beginning of the season when interest is going to be very high for Zion. They're on TV all the time. Um, national audience, which will be exciting. And then I, as I was going through it, there, I looked at the Mavericks at Knicks is a Thursday night game in November. And I didn't even think about that Porzingis. That would be Porzingis's return game to New York, which is, like again, speaking to sort of the thing of like, there are so many guys that are returning to the places that they once played. The Porzingis Knicks reaction is going to be interesting. I imagine it will be a cheer, but you know, you just never know with what like what Nick fans are going to do at that point. Um, but you you were getting into something about Kyrie and Brooklyn, and I, I do want to dive into this. Uh, you you wrote a piece, I think it was the end of last month, about you guys are doing a series, sort of like what's the title of it? Is it um, Are We Our Sure? Store. Yeah. So the idea is. Um, We've gone through the major thrust of offseason movement now. Um, you know, there might be a couple of straggling deals here or there. Guys signed to training camp deals, things like that. But generally speaking, we're in the quiet space after the first you know, three weeks or so of free agency and deals and stuff. And so now that we kind of know what the rosters are and we've you know, we go, we can like revisit our winners and losers and movers and shakers and sort of see based on what we know now going towards training camp or what we think we know about the rosters and the, the players involved, um, sort of re-examine those expectations. So one of the, you know, what I wrote was uh, the the prompt for that piece and the, the sort of headline was like, are we sure the Nets are going to be better next year? And so the idea with this series is not necessarily just to say yes, no, bye-bye. It's to look at the sum total of what a team did um, and re, I guess sort of reevaluate, or, or what a player did, reevaluate where they stand after after all this sort of uh, the tectonic plates shift around the league, and then try to come to sort of a uh, a different, or not maybe not even a different understanding. Just say, all right, well, based on sort of taking a deep breath and looking at this after just the the frenzy of free agency, here's kind of what we think. So 
Uh, I did that with uh, with the Nets, and uh, there was there was a lot of response to it, which was great. It was wonderful that people read it and responded. So, what was the response that you were getting? <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of people responded to the headline and just said yes, and then that was it. Which is fair. People do that, and that's like I can't. You know, people. It, it's it's not up to everybody else to uh, to read the whole thing. That's fine if they don't want to. Um, some people uh, responded. One one you know really sort of interesting point that people suggested. I I forwarded that I'm a little I'm a little less sure about how good the off how much better the offense will be this season than uh, it was last year because I don't know if of the the sort of reputed shooters that the Nets added. I don't know how many of them are really shooters. Um, you know, Kyrie's a better, uh, a more accurate three-point shooter and a more versatile three-point shooter than D'Angelo Russell, definitely. Obviously, if you have Kevin Durant, that certainly helps. But if, in, in a world where you don't have Kevin Durant for this year, um, who are the the sort of additions there? And it's like Wilson Chandler is having has been an above-average uh, three-point shooter maybe like two times in his career. Torian Prince is a, has, has shot 39% from three for a couple seasons, so I think that's probably bankable. Um, you know, like Garrett Temple's like a 34% shooter. There are, a lot, there are a lot of guys that are like just below league average in that way. And so maybe more of them play up, a, you know, in a spread pick and roll system where Kyrie's at the controls, you know, more drawing more attention and opening the door and stuff. But maybe not. Maybe those guys are just sort of who they are and like guys who can hit a shot versus great shooters. And so there are people who responded to that by saying like, a that you know that they expect the shooters to play up because the the system will create more sh- more looks and they'll be more open for the attention that that gets created, um, and that even just like having more guys willing to shoot creates more opportunities in the offense, which should result uh, in a, a bump up in offensive efficiency, which might be we'll see. I don't know. Um, I think some people are a little more a little higher on what DeAndre Jordan might bring as a defensive center than I am. Um, I think he had. He's been declining for a couple of years, but maybe just even having a big body, uh, you know, we saw in the the playoff series against the the Sixers, there was really nobody on the the Nets that could stand toe to toe with Embiid for significant stretches of time. So he's certainly a big body that can do that. Maybe he provides more of an, uh, a sort of stalwart option there. I don't know. We'll see. So I, I, my question was just basically if what this is, if you look at sort of the collection of changes and adjustments on the roster. And who, you know, sort of who came in, you pencil them into the system and the structure. Um, does this look more like a 50 win team or a 45, 46 win team? And I think it's the latter, but uh, some people suggest that it's the former, even without Durant. And that's that's certainly possible. Oh, the, the big thing, and I'm, I, I'm sure you're, you're sort of getting ready for that, is the argument that I didn't su- sufficiently factor in health. I didn't sufficiently factor in what a full season of Kyrus Levert looks like. Um, or, you know, Spencer Dinwiddie missing 15 games and, you know, having some trouble when he, for, when he first came back from his, uh, his hand issue, like what that, you know, what a full healthy season of him looks like. If you get 82 games of fully healthy Karis Levert and Spencer Dinwiddie, that's awesome. And yes, I'm sure, I'm sure the offense should be better. We'll see. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, there's an aspect of it that is a lot of like, I think, that, you know, the, there's the conditions that are there that could result in significant upticks on both offense and defense, but I, I, I'm not sure. I think there's, there's still a lot that's really uh, up in the air with younger players, guys being put into bigger roles in the, the, than you might expect. The question of what the D'Angelo or the, the, uh, DeAndre Jordan, Jared Allen dynamic looks like, what the minutes allotment looks like, what you expect from both guys. 
there's just a lot of questions around it. So uh, I think so where, where I fell was I do expect they'll be better, but I'm thinking it looks at the moment to me more like three or four wins better rather than 10 wins better this season. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. And I think like you said, like when you get the headline that the Nets get Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, you're immediately thinking, oh, my God, they're going to be so much better. Then, of course, everyone knows that Kevin Durant's not playing basketball this year. So it's this weird. So as as a person that does the Nets podcast and follows the Nets and talks to a lot of Nets fans on a regular basis, there is this weird thing that we're all kind of dealing with the fact that like the the excitement of being this team that has Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, it it is completely delayed. It almost feels like a Marvel movie where you just have Captain America and you know that like Thor is coming in the next one. But in this one movie, whatever it is, Winter Soldier, we're just getting Captain America and Captain America may be awesome. Uh, but, you know, when Captain America picks up the hammer from Thor, that's even better. Uh, that's a crazy analogy, I know, but. No, it works. Yeah, kind of. But like the team up that we're that we know is possible, that we know is in volume two, we're in volume one right now. And that's what we're going to be watching most likely throughout the entirety of the season, though. I'm in the camp of like KD is it's quite possible if you just look at like the science (laughs) that he could come back. Now it's like the whole that whole question of like, should he come back? And what's the benefit of him coming back? And, you know, you really are kind of you're really going right on the most optimistic timetable if he does come back and all that stuff like blah, 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 blah. I understand all of that. I'm like team. He's probably going to come back just from the small morsels that we're getting from not even just him from Sean Marks, where Sean Marks isn't putting uh, he's not answering the question. And by not answering the question, it leaves it open ended. And by leaving it open ended, leaves optimistic, which is actually not something that they normally do. With the Nets, they're normally overly cautious with everyone, um, in, in a, to to a good degree. I'm not that's not a negative, but I think you're 100 percent right. So, like, if you're going to look at the sliding scales of positivity and negativity with this team in terms of win total, the health of Karis LeVert is is actually the biggest factor because he was the best player on the Nets before he got hurt. Um, it wasn't D'Angelo Russell. D'Angelo Russell wasn't closing out games before Karis LeVert got hurt. Karis LeVert was the guy who was like potentially not, he wasn't going to be an all-star, but he was going to be a person that would be brought up on the jump to say, you know who you should probably think about is Karis LeVert, you know, that type of discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, you hope you get the, the argument for them being better is that Karis LeVert plays better uh, or the plays a full season that Jared Allen does expand his game. It's an awkward situation with him and DeAndre Jordan. And Jared Allen has even said a guy who's like, who's known for being very team first, very like calm and sort of level-headed, has even said, yes, I want to start. You know, he didn't mm-hmm. say it as a demand, but he has said that. Um, and you hope that the elevation of Touring Prince over Damari Carroll, though Damari Carroll was a, you know, a valued asset for this team, you hope Prince is offers a little bit more versatility. He hopes Rudyans Karuks gets better. Like there's all these like guys on the team on every NBA team that could like whether they repeat even just repeating their performance would be a win. Um like Karuks if he just repeats his performance from last year, that's a win for the Nets because you can't expect a second round pick to be like to progress at the level that you wanted like someone like Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum to. Right. Over all these years. Um it's interesting, you know, before Kevin Durant was part of the equation, 
and we on this podcast were debating like Kyrie versus D'Angelo Russell. I was on the firm keep D'Angelo Russell, don't get Kyrie camp uh, because we didn't know that Kevin Durant was really like going to be a part of that the team up thing. Mm-hmm. Just because, as you're saying, offensively, Kyrie is better. I think unequivocally he's better, but by how much he's better is not all that much. Um, and I think the difference that you get in Kyrie is that you're going to get a guy who's going to get to the free throw line more because D'Angelo Russell never got to the free throw line. Um, the shot selection from Kyrie will, is better than D'Angelo Russell because D'Angelo is so mid-range shooter dependent. Um, and you get a guy who is a little bit more focused on, um, you know, trying to get the other guys involved in the offense where like D'Angelo did that very much so, but you know, he, he, D'Angelo's ultimately his destiny is like the number one scoring guard on a team who does handle the ball a lot like a James Harden, but like it's everything sort of feeding off D'Lo where Kyrie's a little bit more of a point guard mentality. Um, I'm with you though, in that I don't know if their win total is going to be all that different. I don't, I don't see it may be three games more, and three games more, I think, looks at 45 and 37. Right. Um, and that, 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 like, looks better than 42. But I don't think – this team is unlikely to take a huge leap unless if Kevin Durant, for some reason, comes back even earlier than we believe. You know, like, I think, it, I think it's mostly going to be more the same. Um, I think they'll be a more effective team, though. I think they'll be a more of a threat in the playoffs because last year they, like, they weren't – I mean, as you saw – they just weren't up for it. They weren't ready for the Sixers to any any real degree. So that's like the ultimate big difference is that I think in the playoffs they'll be more of a threat where before they just weren't. They were they were a nice story. Yeah, I can see that. And I think that I mean obviously the the, the biggest consideration there is if you're a forty five or forty six win team during the regular season, but Kevin Durant comes back at St. Patrick's Day then you're a very different 45 or 46 win team come mid-April, right? Or at least you have the opportunity to be. And so the fact that they've left the door open on that I think is encouraging. And, you know, it's obviously like there's no reason to shut the door now only to have to reopen it later. We've had teams and players go through will he, won't he, you know, back to, I don't know, like Derek Rose with the Bulls, right? And so the the idea of saying we're not going to say anything outside of he's progressing and we'll find out. And we're not going to declare him open, you know, ready or not ready or out or not out. And, you know, uh, Gordon Hayward with the Celtics, there was that question of like, is he going to be available? Could he be available? Could he not be available? You know, once you sort of start going back and forth on those things, it becomes more of a distraction than maybe it's worth to a team. Um, So I think the idea of just saying we're kind of letting that be. We're not going to say anything definitive one way or the other. And we're hoping for the best. Great. Good. Um, You have to operate under the assumption that it's not going to happen. But if it does then so much the better for all involved. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I mean, and I, I had written about that that question, the Kyrie versus D'Angelo question um, before it became evident that that's where things were going. And to be, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, the the things that you want from a point guard where you want sort of downhill rim pressure, you want finish, you know, be, the ability to get inside and finish among the trees, the get inside, kick out, create more open looks, those sorts of things, sort of a, a guy who can unlock a half-court defense, you know, all of that sort of stuff. I think Kyrie is just, you know, across the board, a more efficient and effective player. Um, the concern I, ha- I had sort of leading into it was you're also getting somebody who's, I believe, five years older and has, you know, significant, you know, fairly significant knee injuries in his, in his rearview mirror. 
But so, you know, the question is, are, are you, you know, you, and you're paying him more money because you're paying him the higher percentage max than you would for D'Angelo coming off of his uh, his rookie deal. So you're paying more for an older guy who has, you know, a little bit more wear and tear on his tires, but you're also paying for a better player who has a, you know, confirmed history of cranking it up at the most important times of the year and obviously has hit the one of the greatest shots in finals history. So there's, you know, a track record of performance at, uh, at, at the highest level. And I expect that to matter. I, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, the player that Russell can be, Kyrie maybe already is and will continue to be for a few years. Uh, and they're different, stylistically different, but also just in terms of quality. You know, D'Angelo Russell is not an – he was a uh, an addition to an all-star team. Kyrie Irving is an all-NBA point guard. There's a, there is a difference in kind. And so that matters. You make that upgrade whenever you can. The other stuff that comes along with it is the other stuff that comes along with it. And maybe it doesn't all come along. Maybe that was a specific issue – with, you know, the way uh, Kyrie felt about the direction that things were going in Cleveland, where he decided he wanted to go out into a, and find a different sort of cir- a set of circumstances. Maybe it was a specific thing about the way that locker room congealed and can sort of came together in a way that wasn't what everybody expected in Boston. And Kyrie didn't sort of didn't feel like it was what he was hoping for. And maybe moving in a, a choice of his own, you know, instead of being traded to a team he didn't have any say in or drafted by a team he didn't have any say in choosing the team he wants to go to to team up with the player he wants to team up with uh, in a structure that is going to be more built around him. Maybe that alleviates any of those sort of chemistry locker room concerns and you're just left with the white meat. You're just left with the, you know, the, you know, you cut away any gristle and you have an all NBA point guard under contract for the next four years. Like, yeah, pretty good and, and should make your team better <laughs> um, and, and more and more valuable at the, at the best time of year. The concern that I, that you'd have is the, he also struggled pretty significantly in the postseason with a lot of the same sort of stuff that Russell did against Milwaukee. So the idea of like settling for a lot of mid-range shots, you know, jacking shots early in possessions as opposed to looking for everybody, uh, you know, not able to, to break down a, an elite defense, struggling to, you know, you know, it was one of the worst, the, the worst sort of shot selection and shooting displays that he, of his career over those last four games against the Bucks. Uh, is that a blip on the radar? It is, it, we, have, we have reason to believe that there's more. There's certainly more of a track record of him not having that kind of struggle in the playoffs. Um, But there's also the question of, well, if he's the number one guy and that will be the case this season and there's, you know, whatever other sort of complimentary talent around him. But defenses can lock in on him as the number one guy. To what degree is he then able to elevate your ceiling over what Russell might have been able to provide? And I think the answer is probably, as we've been talking about, some, but maybe not tremendously on his own. And so then, as you said, it becomes this is sort of a bridge year or a precursor to what the Nets hope to be over the final two, three years of this sort of new nucleus. And uh, and then we'll and we'll see. I mean, I think everybody's really excited for what that's going to look like. And I think the waiting period until we get there is going to be awfully interesting because you know, Kenny Atkinson and, and the sort of staff in Brooklyn, it's similar to sort of the, the process era Sixers in that you had a structure being put in place. Like here's the style of play. Here's the idea for the kinds of players we want. Here's the kinds of shot selection we want. Here's the kind of defense we want to play. And then eventually we're going to get better players and we're going to plug them into it. And we're going to see how it looks when everybody's more, more talented. Well, the nets have been building a style of play for two, three years now. And now they're starting to get the better players to plug into it. And I think it's going to, you know, you'll see the uptick and it's just, but is everybody going to stay in those sort of, lanes uh, established for them, the, the role definitions of the teams until Kevin Durant gets back? Or is it is the, his absence going to require more sort of shuffling and juggling to 
uh, you know, to, to put people in a better, a, a better position to succeed this year versus what it's going to look like at sort of the optimal level when he's back. I think boy, watching how that all evolves is going to be really cool to see. And uh, I mean, being able to, to, you know, to have that sort of unqualified win in Brooklyn of like, we have the talent now and now we sort of see where it goes from here. I think that's really exciting. Yeah. And I mean, I can't tell you. So like the other mark of change possibly is that the Nets were like in the beginning of the season before in 2018, the 2018 portion of the season, the Nets were horrific at the end of games. They they gave up so many times in the end of games that they lost that they were leading by, let's say, eight points with three minutes left and they would lose where this time around one, the players that were on that team, Lavert, Dinwiddie, Joe Harris, Jared Allen, they went through that and then they actually changed throughout the course of the season and became better at the end of games. So now they have all that experience. And then you're adding a guy like Kyrie Irving, who, you know, as you said, it's shot made one of the greatest shots in NBA finals history. Um, that's another like wiggle room of improvement. If there is a wiggle room of improvement on this team. And, you know, you speak about Kenny Atkinson. I think the, the one thing that we know about like Atkinson system, which is, which is really the Nets organizational system because it all comes from both Atkinson and Sean Marks and the idea of how they want to play basketball is that the point guard is the prime is everything in the offense. When it was Jeremy Lin, when it was D'Angelo Russell, it, it's always been the, the guy who has the ball in his hands gets gets to play with all the toys like he it's a pick and roll offense. It's three point shooters on the wing. It's all focused around sort of that 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 structure of offense, and Kyrie's perfect for that. And you would have thought Kyrie was perfect for Boston too. Um, and I think so. You talked about the playoffs situation with him with Milwaukee, and I one that's like I think that was really a symptom of sort of the disease of the season, the problem that the Celtics had all season, which was a lack of trust between the players, an uncomfortableness. Like you just watched it on the floor. And it was it did it never felt connected. Um, mm-hmm. That that disease really metastasized in the playoffs and became something that was uncurable. And then that led to Kyrie's. I think that's I think it led to Kyrie looking about as bad as he's looked in years as a right. basketball player. Um, and I don't know. I don't think that is going to be as much of a problem on the Nets. I am fearful of Kyrie as an influence. Like I. It's become an unpopular opinion because once he joined the Nets, it's like, let's all wrap our arms around him. Sure, sure. But I'm fearful of sort of because because while he was bad in Boston, for sure, it was bad at times in Cleveland. There were stories coming out after, of course, after Kyrie left Cleveland about his like feuding with Tyron Lue and his his awkwardness with LeBron, though. I don't think being awkward with LeBron should be an indicator of almost anything because I think LeBron is sometimes a tough He's just a he's the mega star in the NBA. So it's like a tough right. thing to fit in with him. Um, I am concerned. The one thing I will like the one nugget I'll give to Nets fans is that I think the young players on Boston are different than the young players in Brooklyn. They're just one. They're different people. They're not the same people. And sure. I think the mentality of the, the guys in Boston are very much about like, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. One, Jason Tatum thought he was going to be the next Kobe Bryant, and maybe he still will be. But, like, that was his mindset. He trained with Kobe Bryant and wanted to be that. And Jalen Brown was deservedly thinking, I'm the next Paul George. I don't think Karis LeVert has that. Not that he doesn't want to achieve that level, but I, he doesn't. 
he's has much more of a steady progression. It's like being a child actor versus being uh, George Clooney. Not that Karis Levert's going to be George Clooney level star. But I like, love that though. That's great. Well, but that's what it, I mean. Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum were both immediately top recruits, immediately top draft picks, and immediately guys who are thought to be the next great thing, right? Even though Jalen Brown has a little bit of a wonky beginning. Karis Levert was um, not really a highly ranked recruit, goes to Michigan, gets hurt, gets drafted in the middle of the first round by the Nets, which was actually a surprise when they drafted him. He's had this real slow progression. We've seen it here in Brooklyn where he was a he was a gangly athletic guy who could handle the ball but not really shoot, and he still really can't shoot all that well, but he's progressed to this point where everyone's like, holy crap, Karis Levert may be, you know, he may be not Penny Hardaway, but Penny Hardaway light, you know, a tall ball handler who can get to the rim and make really nice sort of kind of crafty moves all over the place. And his mindset, as I was talking, you know, he's he's developed more of like, I've been a role player. Um, I've been sort of marginalized as a rookie. I've I've had to grow sort of organically. We're like the guys in Boston. They wanted to they wanted to be the stars right away because that's what they have been. So I just think the mindset is a little bit different. And that's why I think maybe Kyrie will work better in Boston. And as you said, he's he chose Boston or chose. I mean, sorry, he'll work better in Brooklyn. He chose Brooklyn. You know, he, he this is his decision. Um, he's not he wasn't forced. He wasn't traded. He's here. Uh, so <laughs> I'm holding on to the hope that like that he does uh, realize that, uh, you know, he needs this to be a win for himself or he's going to enter into uh Dwight Howard territory you know like Dwight Howard went to the Lakers and everyone was expecting him to be the next great Laker and that ended and then he he shuffled around the NBA and his career may be over Kyrie probably his career won't be over if it doesn't go great in Brooklyn but you know we're entering into this this pivot point here for Kyrie where it's like either he's gonna be, be continue to be the guy that hit one of the greatest shots in NBA finals history or he's gonna be a guy who hit that shot, but then like the rest of his career was a waste and was not was was just kind of fluff. So, I, you know, we'll see. It's an exciting time to be a Nets fan, really. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I mean, I think that yeah, expecting that a situation because a situation didn't work out in one setting and it sort of looks from the outside sort of similar, like, all right, young team on the rise uh, has, you know, built itself up with this culture and this continuity and now insert star player X um, and see what happens into the sort of chemistry experiment because the first iteration of that went one way and it looks sort of similar in a different setting doesn't mean that it's going to be the same result. I mean, there, there's reason, as you said, there's reasons to be optimistic. Well, fact, I mean, the fact that the Brooklyn Nets signed Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant in free agency, like we can't lose the forest for the trees in that, right? Like mm -hmm. that is... There, it is a, a, as much an indicator of uh, public faith and league-wide uh, confidence in what the Nets have built and are building as any that you could ask for. And the idea that there's there's an opportunity to take what's been built into sort of a, uh, an existing culture, culture and graft onto it uh, elite-level talent that wants to be part of it. It's very, it's absolutely possible that what we see is sort of a knock on effect that, you know, it's a rising tide that lifts all boats. It totally could be that. 
Um, and and I, I, I think where we come back to with that sort of general idea of what is the point of the Are We Sure sort of series uh, outside of having something to write about in August is that you look at it and say, well, we think we have an idea of what this is going to look like. So let's just sort of take it out and examine what it's going to look like. So the question is, are we sure they're going to be better? I think the answer to that is yes. I think it's just like flat out, flat out yes. And then I think in terms of when you go sort of a layer, a layer beyond that, how much better? I think that's the more interesting question. And I think there's a decent chance that what we're looking at is not, uh, you know, is going to have some some adjustments and some figuring out to do. Much as many of the teams around the NBA are, just given how many players changed, especially players of consequence, changed teams this summer. Um, and then, you know, you, where you sort of settle is comfortably into the tier beneath Milwaukee and Philadelphia. And then we'll see what that sort of three to, I don't know, like seven range, three to eight. I don't know. Um, I think there's a lot of different answers that you could have for those sorts of questions in the East. And the the Nets are in that comfortably in that mix. I expect to be, you know, competing for home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs, which given where this franchise was even two years ago is fantastic and staggering. And with the uh, trump card to play of maybe Kevin Durant's available. And if he's not available this season, we know he's coming back next season. And that's like if you're looking at a reason for optimism, man, like there is there are there are many, many worse situations to be looking at uh, across the NBA. Uh, It just might be one that you have to wait a little while to see come to fruition. Let me I'll I'll ask you one more because I really appreciate your time. And, you know, let's the last question. It's the biggest question about the Nets is KD. Just your feeling, your lean. What do you think? Do you think it, 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 he's going to come back this season? Or do you think just from how the Nets organization has ha- have handled injuries in the past, he may not? I know it's an almost unanswerable question, but just your prediction. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I would predict erring on the side of caution because unlike, say, you know, DeMarcus Cousins signs a one year deal because that's what was available to him on the market and that's what he could get. So getting back on the court more quickly than maybe is necessarily advisable uh, mattered to him because he had to show he could go out there and perform after his Achilles tear. Katie's got the bag and he's got the years and the Nets know it's not just about this year. It's about 2020, 2021, 2022. You know, it's about what they build for beyond that. So I think if there's any question at all as we go along in this process, Everybody, you know, pours cold water on it and tamps it down and says, all right, let's, you know, regroup and make sure you're at 110 percent come September of 2020. And uh, because that's, you know, yeah, we, we don't have to play for just this second. We have uh, a bigger a bigger picture in mind. That said, if I think the fact that they, as you, as you mentioned, the fact that they have not indicated, uh, you know, any they, they haven't publicly tamped down on the idea, they have not publicly said we expect him to be to to miss the whole season. They they've you know left the door open that you know they uh, in the conversation with Chris Haynes at Yahoo, KD like did not confirm that he's going to be out. All those sorts of things that they are leaving the door open to uh, you know medical miracle and and uh, a quicker than expected rehabilitation. I think you have to pres- you know it, it's 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 totally within your realm as a fan to feel cautious optimism about that, but. You got to, you know, understand that what you're like, if he's if they're struggling at like a couple games over 500 in March, like it, uh, you can't be like, well, we where is this guy? We got to get him back because you're the, the the big picture is 
it's the most devastating injury a player can suffer. It's like a it basically, you know, considered to be a year long injury. He suffered it in June. And if you don't get him back before the start of the playoffs, all right, well, it's not about this season anyway. It's about the next couple after that. So uh, I wouldn't put my I wouldn't put any money on him playing this year, but it would be awesome if he did. Yeah. And I think the best way to really think about it as a Nets fan is 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 like the way you're saying it's don't expect it uh, just to to enjoy the current season what is happening in front of you obviously if it happens that would be amazing like if if it happens that would be amazing my lean is just that like the guy who decided he was going to play in the NBA finals while while he was clearly injured and there's clearly more than what we know about his what was it a calf injury is what we were told right um that guy who then spoke to Chris Haynes and said his, he didn't blame the Warriors at all he said I just wanted to ball and that's all you ever really hear about Durant, that he just absolutely loves basketball. Mm-hmm. I I think that same person uh, is going to watch in that season. And I'm not saying he's going to rush back from injury, but there's it's it's more likely that there is going to be a decision point where they're going to they're going to decide either. OK, Kevin, you can come back almost literally a week before the playoffs. Maybe the timeline of that. Not exact, but that would be April. You can come back. And you play 15 minutes a game, and we're not going to let you go over that, but you will play. Or let's just be safe and put you put you on ice, and just to make you sure that you're that nothing bad happens. I still think he's going to almost have an irresistible urge to want to play as long as he's approved to play, like he did in the finals. I, that's just just and again, how his game is that the fact that he doesn't really rely on explosive athleticism. You know, I I would be, you know, the Achilles injury is a really bad one. You know, so I understand. Like, so it's not that easy. It's not as easy as, like, he can't just walk up and down the court and shoot threes. But, you know, basically he could. (laughs) He could just stand in the corner and shoot threes. So I I just think that his personality is going to make him um, not push it, but to kind of be aggressive and to want to play basketball. That's just, like, what he's going to want to do. Even if he probably knows the best thing for him is just not to even try it all this season. I just think of who he is. He's going to want to push it. But, you know, that'll be a fun thing that we're going to be watching all season. So it'll be exciting. Yeah, totally agree. And I think that it's, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, yeah, it's right that he, that's the way he's going to approach it. And then it'll be up to the, you know, Nets brass and medical team and the training staff and everybody else to say, like, all right, if you are putting yourself in a dangerous position, we can't we can't let you do that. And then that's a conversation they'll have at that point. But uh, he's certainly going to approach this and attack it like I need to get back on the court as soon as possible because that's who he is and that's what he does. Um, the Nets as an organization, uh, I think, probably have to think bigger picture than that. But also, like, Kevin Durant wants to play. You're, how hard can you push against Kevin Durant playing basketball for you? Um, yeah, but, I mean, all, yeah, all of which is to say uh, if at the end of this season you're able to say, like, all right, so we've upgraded over the course of 12 months from – like Damari Carroll to Torian Prince to Kevin Durant as our starting small forward. <laughs> um, that's that's a pretty decent place to be, I think, for uh, any any team. I think any team would be very pleased with that uh, that progression over the course of time. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining me. You can read Dan on The Ringer. Um, great stuff. Even, again, in the dead of basketball season, there's still <laughs> really great NBA stuff. And, of course, it's going to continue on. As I mean, next month is training camp. Uh, so, you know, basketball will be here sooner than we think. So, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, boy. Yeah.